Well, good morning again, and we welcome you here on this Resurrection Sunday, and again in celebration of the resurrection of our Lord. And today I wanted to go to a familiar text out of Second Corinthians in chapter 5. We're actually going to start reading in chapter 4 here in a moment, but we often talk about Easter or the Resurrection Day, as it's known um, and we think about it as, again, central to the Christian message of uh, really hope beyond the grave. And that death is not the end. Uh, and it is the great hope that um, every single one of us, uh, well, can face death with hope. And we are going to face death, uh, barring rapture, we're going to face death. It is something that is a universal uh, issue that every person ever uh, faces the death rate is one to one just so you know and that's the way it is and the bible warns us over and over again to certainly co- commit ourselves to the lord but to follow him but also reminds us that we are mortal and that we will face death in the book of james in chapter four james says this whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow a profound statement there isn't it If anybody here can guarantee that you know exactly what will take place in our world by tomorrow, and even in the next hour, uh, you would probably be a very wealthy person because you could speculate on financial changes and the economy and stocks and those kind of things, and you certainly could, could see those things. We don't. We don't foresee the future like that, and let alone the future of what may hold for us in our own life, our own mortality. He goes on to say, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I was thinking recently of uh, the many people in my life that have gone on before me, lots of them. And as I get older, I know more and more on that side of things than on this side. And I start thinking about some of those people that have moved on ahead of me that knew the Lord. And I have the hope that someday I will see them again. But their life, some of it spent with me for years, some of them, some just days, some for months. And yet, as I look back, it doesn't matter, it was all very quick. And my life is going very quickly as well. And I realize it is like a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. And certainly there's more to it just than that. Psalm 90 in verse 5, it says, You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. And life is like that. We are in our prime for a while and our strength as we grow. And then it seems like the old years come rather quickly. Solomon put it this way. There's a time to be born and a time to die. And certainly the Bible uh, talks more and more about that in that. Statistics bear out that with the current world population, um, every second of the day, every second of today, there'll be about two people that die and go off into eternity of every second of our day. That is equivalent to um, a little over 6,500 an hour. Um, If you want to look at it in the total deaths worldwide, it's about almost 57 million people that will die in our world this year. I'm not trying to bring just dread uh, to you, but that's the stark reality. And sometimes we don't like to talk about that. 
Matter of fact, I was looking at the news this week and I saw where a teacher was fired because he had his students um, for one of their assignments write their own obituary. And the students, the, the teachers or whatever, the school districts said that was not appropriate to have children thinking about death. And so they, uh, they fired him for it. I don't know if there was more to the story than that. Maybe there is. But I thought, you know, that teacher at least stopped each and every one of those students long enough to have them consider, what if I died today? What would my obituary look like? Let alone, are you ready for death and are you ready for what's after death? That really is the question. In generations previous to ours, that was a question that was, was talked about regularly because death was much more prevalent throughout the years. Whether you were a child, into your growing up years, or whatever, death regularly visited households, and, and many times it confronted people with those age-old questions. Well, I think back to nearly 2,000 years ago when they came to a tomb early in the morning, and there... As they came to that tomb, thinking that probably the tomb would be sealed and be guarded, instead they found the tomb open and it was empty. And they found that Jesus was no longer in the tomb, but that he was risen. And that changes everything. And the, the absolute despair that death had brought into our world has been changed now to hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, if you want an outline, we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians here in chapter 5, but I want to talk about the resurrected body because Jesus' resurrection assures also those that believe in him and die as we put off this old mortal flesh that our bodies someday too will be resurrected. And a very important part of that. And I, I want to look at that this morning from the hope that the Apostle Paul gives us out of 2 Corinthians and we're going to begin in verse, uh, or in verse 13 of chapter 4, because remember, your chapter divisions are not inspired, all right? The Word of God is, but these are just there for, you know, our navigation, essentially, to get into the book. But they really flow together. And at this end of chapter 4, Paul connects that with what follows in chapter 5. So I want to begin reading here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith... According to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. And therefore we do not lose heart. Amen. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Bible talks about the very fact about our resurrected body. First of all, the resurrection is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ himself. Proving he had victory over death and the grave. And he holds the very keys to life and death. But we're reminded as we go into chapter 5 here, and that's going to be the majority of our text this morning, 
is that we live in a very temporary world, in a temporary body. This is temporary, believe it or not, even though we try really, really, really hard to make it permanent, right? I mean, we try, right? I, I don't do a very good job of it, obviously, but uh, we do, right? You know, we, we, we buy lots of makeup. We buy, you know, uh, stuff that's supposed to make your hair grow. That doesn't work, obviously. Uh, you know, we, we try to make ourselves look younger. We exercise, eat right, all those things, and yet the body is just temporary. It's passing, and we're reminded of those things. Well, chapter 5 opens up saying this, For we know, that's Paul saying, We know that if our earthly house, and then he calls it this, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. My friends, you live in a tent. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's what you live in. And I live in it. And just, uh, I don't know, all of us have probably spent time in tents. Anybody not spent time in a tent? No, you've done it. Anybody sleep in a tent last night? Probably not. It's not usually the the type of kind of structure you want to be in, at least sleeping in this time of year, right? Um, And even in the summer, it was like that. My first experiences in tents was camping with my mom and dad when I was just a little tyke. And I remember that. Dad always took care of stuff. And, you know, we'd go whatever. We'd go tenting somewhere. And I, I have those memories. And then I remember being in the Boy Scouts. And there we knew how to live in tents, right? I mean, the Boy Scouts, that's what it's all about, going out, you know, camping and learning how to survive and all that. And the very first time I joined the Boy Scouts when I was 10 and a half, um, I knew that because I had just barely made it to that age where I could join it. And uh, I we went our very first time we went camping was in Van Buren of all places. Wow, wasn't all that great, but anyways, it was not because it was Van Buren, but rather because we lived in we were in tents for about three days. We did this jamboree, and I remember it rained the whole time, and it was cold, and that is exactly the kind of tent I slept in. It was like Civil War surplus stuff, you know. And uh, I remember sleeping in that, and there's no floor in that. We just sort of floated in the puddle that formed. And our sleeping bags were wet. Our clothes were wet. We were wet. We were tired. And, you know, at 10 and a half, I was done sleeping in a tent. I, I said, no more. I, I still slept in tents. I went in the military. And then in the Army, of course, they learned to um, put you in tents, too, you know. And I'd rather sleep anywhere but in the tent sometimes that they'd put us in. And by the way, they issued us as equipment, uh, this was in the 1980s, a, t- a shelter half. I don't know, Al, you probably remember the shelter half of those that were in the Army. And it was just half a tent. That's all they gave you. You had to have somebody else for the other half, you know, you hoped. So you didn't even have a whole tent, you know, think about it. But anyways, that, uh, that was part of it. But it's a reminder that a tent is just a temporary dwelling. It isn't meant to be comfortable always. A tent given enough time begins to sag and it begins to wrinkle and it begins to fall apart at the seams. It leaks. (laughs) All the problems that this body has as it ages, right? And we begin to to live in, in that tent and understand what that's all about. But we're reminded from the same text that though we live in a temporary dwelling, a tent, we are actually moving to a building. A building is a permanent structure. 
And that's what God has prepared for us. Not like the ones down here, because even permanent structures down here really aren't permanent, right? I mean, if you look around in this town, um, the buildings in this town, they're not a thousand years old, just so you know, right? Uh, Many of them are, most of them are less than a hundred years old. And when you look around, buildings are not permanent that way. But in heaven, they are. The place in which Christ is preparing for us, and he promised his disciples that and his followers uh, through, through him. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. A dwelling place. A permanent structure. A place that it'll never rain again. Okay, You won't be living in a puddle in an old tent. Instead, you're going to be in a building that is made by God himself. Fit for the heavens and fit for us. He goes on to say, we have a building from God, house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Aren't you glad that that building is eternal? And there won't be any need to fix it up. It's going to be perfect the day we move in. Oh, I look forward to that. Paul uses this analogy of the tent and the building, and he is referring to the body that will someday be raised up also and united with our soul and our spirit and that body will be made new, completely new. And it's, it's a different body, um, yet with the same identity. It will be you, just so you know. It won't be something else, but you. If you believe in Christ, and you've made him your Savior, he's promised you that and given you that. We have the certainty of a resurrected body. And there's a, a lot of other things that we could look at in that, but... We understand that death is not the end. And, and death, by the way, there's a lot of philosophy out there on death. You know, what happens after death, those kind of things. And uh, of the writing of books, there is no end, right? And you can pick up a book on all kinds of stuff, including the topic of death. The reality is there's only one that really has gone through the portals of death and has been able to come back and tell us what it's like, and it's Jesus. I mean, there were others he raised from the dead, but... The reality is when Jesus was resurrected and he appeared again to his disciples and then he appeared to others as well, including, according to what Paul writes, over 500 people at one time, he was able to convey to them the hope that is beyond the grave. I am thankful for that. Death is not the end. It is not simply reincarnation. That's another, you know, Uh, A lot of people in our world today that would believe that we're going to get a second chance. And then another chance. And another chance after that. And the Bible does not teach about reincarnation at all. Um, It is contrary to the way the Lord reveals uh, life and death. And matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews it says, It is appointed unto man once to die. Not twice to die or ten times to die, but once. And I'm thankful it's just once. But it's also a stark warning that you will die once. You're not going to get away from it. It will happen. I came across an old hymn that I've never heard sung. I'll talk more about it at the end. But the first verse of that is called Death is a Warning by Joseph Hart. Written in the 1700s. And he, he writes in that first verse, Vain man thy fond pursuits forbear. Repent, thy end is nigh. Death at the farthest can't be far. Oh, think before thou die. Good instruction. Remember, 
Death is coming. It is appointed on demand once to die. You live in a tent, but someday you're going to trade it in for a building. And I'm thankful that we have that. You know, uh, I look at it as, and that's sort of the way he says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we are going to get, death is a trade-in for the Christian, for the believer, because of the resurrection of Jesus, and because he's promised he'll resurrect your body as well. We're getting, uh, taking this. I I look at it, thinking in my own mind, I said a trade-in. You know, we've all, maybe you've traded in a vehicle before. And a lot of times, that vehicle you traded in isn't the one you want anymore because it's probably old and it's costing you money, more money than you want, you know, to repair it. And you're hoping you can get a little something for it and you always go. And, and you never get more for your trade-in than you would on a new vehicle, right? But the only problem today with that is that with a new vehicle, there always comes payments or you have to pay the difference somehow. But the trade-in that Jesus talks about, God talks about, is... A trade-in of the old. The old tent is taken down. It it's, goes back to the dust, all that. But someday he's going to call it back together. And he's going to resurrect that body to be united with the, the soul, the spirit in heaven forever. And it doesn't come with any payments. The payment was paid in full at the cross. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus died for your sins He suffered for you and for me. And he calls us to repent from our sins and believe on him. And if you believe on him, he's promised you eternal life. And the third day he rose again, showing indeed he not only paid for sin by his death, but he proved he had power over death and over hell through his victory out of the grave. Well, we have the certainty of the resurrected body. But secondly, the nature of the resurrected body. What is it going to be like? And we discover some things. First of all, it's like putting on a coat. That's how Paul describes it. He says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And we do groan, don't we? Somebody mentioned, I, they heard me groan when I sat down. Or later, I, I've been up on my feet walking around doing all kinds of stuff. I finally sat down just before church and I went, Ugh. You know, and all of a sudden realize that it feels good to sit down. And sometimes we just groan, we sigh, we kind of, we, we kind of like, you know, I'm, I feel it. And that isn't much, really. Uh, but that's the way things are. We groan, not only outwardly through our body, but our own spirit, our own heart, our mind, as we age, as we get closer to that date where we will face eternity earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven if indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked for we who are in this tent groan being burdened not because we want to be unclothed but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life it's like putting on a coat That's how Paul describes it. Being clothed. And that word clothed means to be covered. We want that kind of salvation that covers us. Not just part of us, but a whole kind of salvation. And he offers that. I think about the comfort sometimes being clothed with something warm can bring. I remember as a kid, just as a little boy, 
going out with my dad sometimes we'd be in the woods or somewhere and I would get wet or something and cold and as a, a little guy you know you get cold easily and I remember my dad always had this big wool red coat he was a warden you know and every now and again he'd, he'd say here put this on he'd, he'd put that right over me and it was way bigger than I was at the time and and that would just cover me and I remember falling asleep in his truck in his boat and other places uh, as a little guy being wrapped up in that coat and God is like that in that he wants to clothe us and death though it feels at the time as we're going through it is a stripping away of everything It's for the believer a process by which he promises to clothe us on the other side of that. And you'll go from this point, whereas um, Job cried out in his anguish, naked I came into this world and naked I shall return. And yet he also could cry out and say this, and yet I know my Redeemer lives. And I know my Redeemer lives. Jesus is alive. And he's promised to clothe us from on high. Be thankful for that. It is an answer to our groans. And that's part of it as well. He knows that we groan in the times we, not only our bodies, but everything that's breaking down around us. Sometimes it's our very, the things around us. You know, I look at the world and the state of the world that we're in. Doesn't look very good, does it? Seems like it's worse every day. And yet, um, it's been like that since sin has been in the world. And there have been worse times, and there have been better times. But so long as there's sin, there will be sadness, and there will be groanings, and there will be people that have problems. We look around, and it could be a marriage breaking up. It could be friends that have abandoned you. It can be the disappointments of family or friends in that we groan because we lived in a fallen, mixed up, messed up, broken down world. <laughs> and that's the reality of it. But someday we'll be clothed and there won't be any more death and sickness and darkness and crime and all the things that plague us down here. The word cancer, how that levels us when we hear that, right? All those different things. That's not going to be a problem anymore. It removes... Our deepest fears. Let's be real. Most people fear death and at least the process of death. I think for the believer, we do not need to have death overcome us in our fears, but it's a fearful thing to die. I know that because when the Bible talks about Jesus in the garden and it says he was in agony, and the word for agony that is used there is is a word that is used when there's an impending fear. And it's not just a pressing, it's a pressing kind of fear. And have you ever realized that even Jesus in the flesh feared his own death? It wasn't that he was afraid of what was going to come. He knew that, and he, by the way, said the Bible says he did that willingly. But the process by which he would suffer was not taken lightly by Jesus. I'm sure when they came for him in his arrest in the garden... His heart rate went up because he was a man and yet he was a fully God. He was the perfect sinless man, but he was a man and he was subject to every single thing that you and I are subject to in the flesh. 
when he was taken and cruelly treated in his chastisement, where they, where they whipped him and they planted a crown of thorns on his head, that hurt. Not only hurt, it, it produced such pain and agony that sometimes the Romans, when they were chastising people in punishment, they bragged that there were those that were specialized in that, that they could take and lay a man's back bare to the bone with just three whips of a Roman lash that they would use. They would use these little whips that had um, uh, little leather uh, thongs that came out, and on those the ends of those, often they would embed lead, which was a nice heavy object to bruise, and they would also take like shards of hard bone, like femur bone or whatever, and they would embed that in the leather, and it was just like a very heavy, you know, especially as it's coming down on your back, uh, ball of lead followed by a piece of bone that would rip right into your skin. And when the Bible says that they they chastised him or uh, the short term whipped him, he went through that process. The book of Isaiah prophesied and said his visage, his face was marred beyond the recognition of a man. When Jesus was there, even before he was nailed to a cross, if you were to look at him, His body was riddled from head to toe with just the wounds that he suffered for you and me. No wonder he was in agony in the garden because he knew what would come. Not only that, but he was dying as an innocent man. Oh, the injustice of that. He was also the one, and and by the way, he he was taking upon himself the sin of the world. Listen, I, I as, sometimes as a pastor or as a chaplain or other times just as a friend or whatever, sometimes you know how it is. You bear some other burdens that people are going through. And you feel the pressures they go through when they're having some awful thing happen in their life. But I am so thankful. I don't have to bear everybody's. And I don't have to do it all at once. Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world, the Bible says. And that's the sin past the sin present, the sin future, every single act of sin and every single selfish thing that's ever occurred in our world was placed upon him at the cross. He tasted death for everyone. Tasted. I don't have to taste death for everybody. I just have to taste death for myself. But Jesus took it all. Oh, what a savior. It removes our deepest fears. I don't have to worry about loved ones who died either. If they've died knowing the Lord, they are in Christ. They are in a far better place. And Paul says as much in uh, verses 6 to 8 in the same passage. He says, so we are always confident knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What a great verse. When this body is put off for the believer, you are present with the Lord. You go from this world, probably with tears on your face, and you're in the next world where there's never a tear that'll ever be shed again. Wow. Paul expands on this in First Thessalonians chapter 4, another familiar text. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, referring to those who have died. And it refers to the body, not the soul. The soul is never referred to as sleeping. 
but the body as it's put off is like a state of sleep. He says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Have you ever sorrowed with someone or witnessed someone who sorrows that has had no hope at all? Even in the West here, we have a, so many people have a false hope that everybody goes to heaven. And even when they lose a loved one, there's still some hope, you know, through that. Because I think Christianity has permeated our culture in many ways, although less and less by the day. But, but I, I will say this, when you truly are with people that have absolutely no hope, it is the most disturbing thing I've ever heard. The wailing sounds of people who are crying over a loved one who's died and they have no hope. And I've had those occasions on a couple. It's very disturbing. For the believer, we don't sorrow like that. We sorrow. And we can cry. And we can even wail. At the, but we still have the hope of the believer. And what hurts so much now is so good for them. Right now. It hurts for us, but it's better for them. And then he goes on to say, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Comforting words. Here, there, or in the air. (laughs) Because see, that's the way it is for believers. There are people who have gone on before me that I I have not seen for years, will not see until I get to, to heaven I think I'll be much more concerned about Christ when I'm there than I am probably the people even there. But, but I will say it will be a grand reunion. A reunion of, of, of the saints. A reunion of people who are redeemed from all ages and all times. And they will be there in the presence of God. And we will somehow know them. Even people that we didn't even know in our own lifetime. At the transfiguration of Christ. You remember that when Jesus was transfigured, also saw Moses and Elijah there. How did the disciples know that was Moses and Elijah? How would they know that? They never lived in those times at the same time. But God drew back the little bit of picture there of of heaven, what the glorious state is going to be like. And there, those three disciples saw exactly what would be there. And they recognized Moses and Elijah. I imagine I'll recognize Christians from other parts of the the world, from other places, other times, and know them more than I can do now. I forget everything now. Someday the brain will be right, you know, made right. Well, we have that glorious hope, but we also have this, the guarantee of the resurrected body. is a certainty, the nature, and the guarantee. He goes on to say in verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That's God the Holy Spirit. One of the marvelous benefits of salvation is that he gives us this very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in the life of the believer now. And the Bible says he's our down payment, our guarantee. Guarantee of what? It's a guarantee that the 
that we will get to heaven, that there will be a resurrection, that uh, what is now we see dimly will be seen clearly, not because I hold on to God, but rather he's holding on to me. And that's what the Spirit of God does. He dwells in the life of the believer, and he's the the proof, he's the guarantee. And it reminds us we were made for something better than this. We live in a world that is very narcissistic, you know. In other words, infatuated with self, infatuated with looking in mirrors or taking selfies or whatever else it is. I'm not against selfies. I don't ever really have a face that I like to put out there. But anyways, you know what I mean? But, but I, I say it this way. If you look at today, uh, so much of our language is so self-directed. We were made to live for someone else and someone greater than ourselves. We're made to go out there and really soar like eagles, as the Bible says. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, right? They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what you were made for. You were made to worship. You were made to worship God. Unfortunately, we'll try to worship anything but God in our sinful state. We'll worship self. We'll worship an idol. We'll worship some chicken on a rock. I don't know. I mean, you name it. They'll worship it. But not God. The eternal God. The one who is above and uh, everything. But you were made with something for something better. And when we die, we will, as believers, go to be in that better place with a better hope and position. God has guaranteed our future as well. And by the way, there's many verses I could read here, but... um, 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, but a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His resurrection gives us that living hope. Otherwise, it's vain. It's just empty. We would have believed amiss. He says, To what? To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I love that long sentence Peter has. <laughs> Just long. But it's basically you're, you have a living hope because of the resurrection of Christ and you are kept by the power of God. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that created the heavens and the earth, was able to speak things and they became. (laughs) Think about that. That's powerful God and he keeps you for that. God has guaranteed our future resurrection. He guarantees our future resurrection. And I just alluded to that based on two things. He's guaranteed it. Number one, he raised his own son. The Bible says that uh, first of all, the triune God raised Jesus from the dead. Because remember in John's gospel, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's referring to the temple of his body. So we know that Jesus rose from the dead by his own power. We know from Romans chapter 8, the spirit of God which raised Jesus from the dead. And we know from Galatians chapter 1, the father whom raised Jesus from the dead. You see the triune God who raised Jesus from the dead. 
the power of the fullness of God. He raised his own son. And then secondly, we've already talked about this, but he gave us the spirit as a sacred deposit. And in Romans 8.11, it says that, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'm so thankful for that. It's as good as done. When Jesus does something, when God does something, it's as good as done. Even though I'm not in that future state of glory, I have the Spirit of God, and He bears witness of that. He guarantees that. We're in a dying world, a land of dying people, but in the midst of that we can have the hope that someday this mortal body as it's put off and if it ends up back in the dust of the earth God will take it all and bring it back together and make a new body that will be perfect in every way like unto his the Bible says thank God that death is not the last word I often think of that when Jesus hung on the cross and that's that, uh, that day when he was crucified and we celebrate that often Good Friday we call it and it's good because someone took my place. And if you asked me about that, I'd say that's good. Good for me. It wasn't good for him in that way. But it's good for me. And he suffered for us. But if, if that had been the final word, if, if, a, if someone had gone to a cross and suffered for me, that would have been a noble act, a wonderful thing. You know, we would honor that. But if death was to hold him and that was the final act His life was vain, empty, because he didn't have the power over sin and the power over death. That's why the resurrection is absolutely important. It has to happen. And the proof, there's so many proofs out there that it did happen. Someday we will see things as they are. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by faith, what's that like? Some of you know what it's like. You've walked by faith, or you are like me, you you try to walk by faith, right? Not always, sometimes I walk by sight, and I get in trouble when I do that. God is always honored when we trust him more. And the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please him. What is faith? Faith is just that, relying on Him. And I have often prayed, Lord, keep me close to You. Help me me in such a way that I don't depend on me too much. I'm thankful for the years He's given me in strength and the years uh, He's given me in those things, but I realize that someday will stop. You know, I I was thinking about people that have gone on before me, and I've mentioned Clayton Crocker before to you, and uh, back in... 2013 coming up on 10 years now um, I preached his funeral he was 89 years old Clayton Crocker was a pastor for many years he pastored numerous churches around the state of Maine all little churches but they they grew under his his leadership and his preaching he was a dear man of God a dear friend and I knew him in his last years when he came at, uh, to Pastor Umgig Baptist Church where I was pastoring and he had pastored there twice before um, and he came in his retirement years, in his late 70s, and he said, would you mind if I come to Pasadena? I said, I'd love to have you there. 
I always like it when we have people who are former ministers that are in our church because you know what? They're a big blessing, right, to, to do that. And so he, Clayton and his wife Dawn sat there under the ministry and, and assisted there. And he continued to do funerals for people that he knew because he had known a lot of people over the years. And he outlived most of them. And I remember one day he called me to his house and I went to him. He was probably 84 at the time. And he sat down with me and he says, Jack, I, I have to give it up. I can't preach anymore. And I said, uh, well, why do you say that? And he says, my mind is going. He was, he was beginning Alzheimer's. He knew it. And he said, I, I, I got up the other day to a place, and I went to preach, and I, I didn't have anything in my mind that would even, I, he said, I just can't do it anymore. And he says, I need to stop. And he knew that. He knew his body was weak. His mind was weakening. And I remember just praying with him and asking God to strengthen him. He'd been a very strong man in his years. He grew up on a farm, a dairy farm. Uh, he, he was not only a, a strong man there, he, went, he was served in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Um, he worked for Great Northern Paper Company for 18 years and then resigned to follow the Lord's call of ministry. And God used him in those years after that. Uh, a lot of those things. But I, I say that because he meant a lot to me. And I remember standing there in Howland, Maine at the cemetery as we were burying him that afternoon. And there in May of, of uh, 2013, and we were putting that casket down into the ground. I, I usually try to stay there until all the family's gone. That's sort of a tradition that pastors do. And I stay there until the undertakers, as they say, the last person to let you down. <laughs> and I remember standing there and watching that casket being lowered down into the ground and I said oh some bright glad morning that casket's going to come open and my friend Clayton is going to be reunited with that body but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord that's now and I'm thankful I have that blessed hope of the resurrection and others I could say it over and over again But we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the presence of sin. And my friends, death is not the end. It's never the end. Most of you know probably the face of Abraham Lincoln, right? Not only because he's on some of our currency, but he was our 16th president here in the United States. A man acquainted with death throughout his whole life. His mother who was uh, one of the really dearest people in his, all his life, died when he was only nine years old. And before that, his, his grandfather, who he, uh, had died, in, was killed in an Indian raid. And we know a little bit about Abraham Lincoln. Of course, historians write about you, and if you're somebody famous like that. But he, he ended up losing, uh, he had no surviving children, by the way. His children died young uh, in that. But interestingly enough, if you, follow, if you read a little bit about Abraham Lincoln, when he was about 25 years old, he fell in love with a girl named Anne Rutledge. Anne uh, and her family, they were the settlers of New Salem, Illinois. And they had been the founding, part of the founders there for that, that town early on. And Anne was just 22 years old 
Um, she had many men coming and courting her, as they describe her. There's no pictures of Anne Rutledge, but she's described by historians as um, a, a woman of uh, immense beauty, fair-skinned, auburn hair, blue eyes. She had uh, keen intellect and wit about her, and she was able to engage in any conversation. And, and naturally, Abe Lincoln, a young Abe Lincoln, uh, he became much uh, infatuated with this girl and, and drew and, and got her heart and won her heart even though she had much more handsome suitors he was never he was often called as a young man ugly Abe because he wasn't really a handsome man he, he was kind of a homely man in, in, in that way and they were engaged to be married and Abe Lincoln who he was he was finishing up his law uh, schooling so he could be licensed to practice law and in 1835, just before they were to be married, Anne Rutledge uh, ended up contracting typhoid fever, and she died uh, not long after that. But the very, one of the very last things she did is she had, she had called for him and the rest of her family to come to her bedside. She had a voice that was just a beautiful singing voice, and she sang this hymn. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to read the words to it. And it's what I quoted earlier. She sang this hymn in their presence. And it says, Vain man, thy fond pursuits forbear. Repent, thy end is nigh. Death at the farthest can't be far. Oh, think before thou die. Reflect, thou hast the soul to save. Thy sins, how high they mount. What are thy hopes beyond the grave? How stands that dread account? Death enters, and there's none or no defense. His time, it says, there is none can tell. He'll in a moment call thee hence to heaven or down to hell. And then it says, thy flesh, perhaps thy greatest care, shall into dust consume. But ah, destruction stops not there. Sin kills beyond the tomb. Today, the gospel calls today, sinner, it speaks to you. Let everyone forsake his way, and mercy will ensue. My friends, I am reminded, though we we celebrate the resurrection today, there are many who remain in their sins, and they have not trusted Jesus Christ. And for them, death is not a welcome. Death is indeed something to dread, because of what awaits beyond Don't be that person who rejects the only way to heaven. As we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, if you are a stranger to the Lord, today is the day of salvation. Trust Him, believe on Him, turn from your ways, and follow Him. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. Grateful for the mercy that will ensue. The mercy that flows from the cross. Thank you, Lord, you took our punishment. And the grave was not able to rob you. But you have power over that. And, oh God, I pray even now, you would just work amongst us this morning. And, Lord, if there's any business that people need to do with you, that, Lord, you would work in their hearts today. Work in my heart. Oh God, that you indeed would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.